Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We've reached the end of the road. You might have wondered, somewhere back there around mile two or three hundred, whether we would make it all the way to this point. Frankly, there was a time or two when I wondered the same thing myself. But here we are, at the conclusion of our series on great escapes, with the end of the summer in sight and each of us trying to hoard the last remaining days until all the usual routines creep back in. Last week, we promised you that we were saving the best for last. And while, of course, we love all our authors equally, there really is something special about the final book in our series, a book by historian Julie Thompson entitled The Hunt for the Last Public Enemy in Northeastern Ohio, Alvin Karpis and His Road to Alcatraz, published by the History Press. For one, Thompson's account sounds like it was taken straight out of Hollywood celluloid, when in fact, a good deal of Hollywood celluloid was later based on the events in her account, as you'll shortly hear. It's the story of one of the worst gangsters, but also one of the greatest escape artists in American history. A man who, we didn't even have time to talk about this in our interview, but a man who lied to his own associates about his name to protect himself, and a man who had his fingerprints surgically removed to prevent capture. Yeah, that kind of guy. Just a short note before we get started. This is our last episode of Crime Capsule, not just of the series, but of the season. And as befits a proper season finale, we went a bit longer than normal. We've given you the whole interview here all in one go. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. Julie, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. We are so delighted to have you. Thank you so much, Ben. I'm really excited to be here, and I appreciate you including me in your podcast. So you have been working in public history for many years, and you are a native of the region that you write about in your your book. I have just one question for you kind of right up front. Uh, growing up in northeastern Ohio, did, did you know that your home state was a cesspool of sin and vice for over a century? Actually, I did not. It wasn't until I started researching this topic uh, about uh, eight years ago that I realized Cleveland especially was not really just the birth of rock and roll, but it was the birth of crime. Yeah, so tell us about that. How how did you make this connection to Alvin Karpis and the Ohio legacy of organized crime? Well, it's a very interesting story, at least I think. And it began uh, many, many years ago. I won't say how many, but I was sitting in my social studies class in the seventh grade at James A. Garfield Middle School. And that was Ms. Walker's uh, social studies class. And I distinctly remember, even still today, her just mentioning about a great train robbery that happened in Garrettsville in 1935. And she didn't give much detail, but I thought at the time it was very interesting. And so fast forward to many years, uh, I was in my, um, I was at Hiram College. I was in the last year where all the students were expected to complete their capstone. And so I was trying to come up with a very unique and interesting 
uh, thesis for this paper and for this research. And of course, a lot of the other students were, you know, researching was our country actually founded on Christian principles, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln's administration, how George Washington was the father of our country. And those are fantastic topics, but they've been widely researched. And so I was talking to my husband one evening and he was ironically in the same class with Ms. Walker in the seventh grade and recalled this being mentioned about the great train robbery in Garrettsville. And he said, well, why don't you check into that? And I said, nah, I, you know, she really didn't say a whole lot about it. I didn't think there was much to the story. And so in the meantime, one evening I was watching the movie Public Enemies uh, starring Johnny Depp as John Dillinger. It was the 2009 mom, mob drama. And there was a scene in that movie where George Machine Gun Kelly, who was a kidnapper and a gangster, he was arrested in Memphis, Tennessee in 1933. And the government men with the Bureau of Investigation had just raided his apartment it was the middle of the night, and of course, Kelly was startled, and he jumped up out of bed and shouted, don't shoot, G-men, don't shoot, G-men, and it hit me like lightning, and I thought, oh my gosh, uh, that is the athletic mascot of my high school alma mater, the fighting G-men. I thought there has to be something to this. And so that's when I began researching the topic of the great train robbery. And I started at my local historical society, the James A. Garfield Historical Society. And that's where I discovered really the story behind our athletic mascot, which was about the great train robbery in 1935 and how the government men, or G-men, flooded our quaint town looking for a gangster named Alvin Creepy Carpus. And at that time, the president of the society explained that the folklore behind the fighting G-men was actually directly connected to this train robbery and to that gangster, Alvin Creepy Carpus. And so... Uh, from there, I actually was connected to uh, Richard Davis, who was the son of Earl Davis, who was held up in that train robbery in 1935, and I actually did an interview with the son. Oh, that's great. What a connection. Yeah. I was like, holy Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I found my capstone, and this was actually a riveting local story that had national implications today for law enforcement. So that's kind of the shortened version of how I came to this topic. That's fantastic. So for, for our listeners who may not know this part of Ohio very well, can you just give us a quick orientation of, say, where Garrettsville is, where Cleveland is, and where you were growing up so that so we can kind of get a bird's eye view of what we're talking about here. Sure. Garrettsville is actually about 40 miles southeast of Cleveland. 
It is um, a quaint historic town, uh, less than 2,400 people to date. It was actually incorporated as a village in September of 1864. And at the beginning of the 20th century, Garrisville was actually the largest center in the world for the processing of maple syrup. And Oh, yum. Yeah. <laughs> good, good place to grow up. <laughs> Absolutely. I had a dirt road at the time, of course, and largely due to the efforts of a man named Arthur Crane, he canned the maple uh, tree product at a cannery in the area. Now, Crane's son, who was Clarence Arthur Crane, grew up in Garrettsville, and he married a young lady in the area. They gave birth to a son known as Harold Hart Crane, and he's often referred to as just Hart Crane, who later became a renowned poet and a great influence, influencer in modernist poetry. And you may have heard of uh, the 1930 acclaimed work, The Bridge. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And so that family has uh, been well known throughout our history and throughout Ohio history. They continued their work in maple syrup. And Harold Crane went on to become um, a renowned poet in primarily in New York. And in fact, Clarence, the father, continued to work in the maple sugar and candies industry. Eventually, the Crane family became the Queen Victoria Chocolate Company, which essentially invented Lifesavers candy. Well, it sounds like the United States owes uh, this part of Ohio a debt which it may never be able to repay, Julie. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of hidden history um, in Garrettsville, and Ohio has a lot of nook and crannies. So let's let's talk about another local denizen, denizen for a very brief period of time, who is uh, the instigator behind the madness uh, we're discussing today, um, Alvin Carpus. What a guy. We are doing a series, as you know, this is the very end of our series on great escapes and fugitives from the law and in honor of summertime. And Carpus it is no exaggeration to say, was one of criminal history's great escape artists. I mean, he really had uh, an enormous amount of skill and talent and ingenuity uh, when it came to <laughs> evading the law. And every time I read sort of the next ex escapade that he went on in your book, I kept thinking, you know, this guy was just among... The best of the best. I have to say that when I was researching this story, eventually the book became uh, entitled The Hunt for the Last Public Enemy in Northeastern Ohio. And so really this story ends up being the thief versus the justice. The thief, of course, being Alvin Karpis as the proclaimed protagonist or antagonist and then J. Edgar Hoover as the uh, as the protagonist. And so it's really a struggle between good and bad and law enforcement and the backroad bandits. And so Carpus, as early as 10 years old, he had written two autobiographies, was saying that by 10 he was on his way to becoming U.S. public enemy number one. Um 
essentially, he, um, as an adult, he was about five, nine, three quarters tall. He weighed only about 130 pounds. Um, and he really, at a young age, honed a practice of robbing stores and warehouses. And more than once, Carpus really was described as resembling that dark-haired Boris Karloff. He was the long-faced Frankenstein monster that, uh, you know, was portrayed in the 1930s horror film. And so, yes, his parents were Lithuanian immigrants. His parents did immigrate to Topeka, Kansas, um, when Carpus was only two years old. And the family did remain there until 1923. Carbus had three sisters. Uh, he was the second oldest. And he was very close to his sisters. He often described them as honest and hardworking girls. And of course, he... Uh, <laughs> yeah, quite the contrast. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. And so when he would retell his story years later... He explained that it was his elementary school teacher uh, who changed his name to Alvin Karpis. And that was because Alvin Karpowitz was hard to keep pronouncing. And so she simplified it into Alvin Karpis. He actually grew up in Topeka in a rundown two-story farmhouse on 2nd Street. And it was a very dilapidated childhood home. It was located at the edge of town where the pimps, petty thieves, and prostitutes hung out. And so naturally, he would run errands for these uh, less than illustrious individuals. And he always arrogantly described that he liked the action. So by the time Alvin was 13 years old, he had left the public school system for good and he only completed his education until the eighth grade. And so then from there on out, uh, since his home was smack dab up against a railroad right away, the Santa Fe Railroad, it's no great mystery why Carpus, of course, would have loved trains. And so as a non-paying passenger, Carpus would travel the United States and he eventually knew the railroads better than anyone. And he developed all the little details that one would need to know to take advantage of the system. And so as fate would have it, Garrettsville was not his first train robbery. You write that by the mid-1920s, he has already been in and out of jail and has escaped from the penitentiary in Kansas with one of his accomplices. He goes on another crime spree. He gets rearrested, and he goes back to prison, and he's already planning his next moves. It really is kind of remarkable that Carpus viewed uh, prison, the state penitentiaries, as his academies. I mean, didn't he? You know, the prison was his crime school. He went there not to be rehabilitated, but to learn better techniques. Absolutely. And that was first honed, of course, when he was caught riding the rails. He was caught uh, riding the roof of the train. And that's when he first uh, developed a criminal record. Originally, the judge gave him, because he was only 17 at the time, the judge gave him um, 30 days of hard labor. And then he diminished that 
with just $25 uh, in court costs. And so you would have thought Carpus was thinking, well, wow, I got away with it. Thank God the sentence was reduced. But instead, by February of 1926, when he was still 17 years old, he decided to steal some tires from a warehouse. And it, because he had developed a record by riding the roof of the rails, he um, was sentenced to five to 10 years. And he was received at the Kansas Reformatory in Hutchinson, and that's where he met his first criminal cohort, a gentleman by the name of Larry Duvall, who was a burglar and safecracker. And so that's where it really began. And so then they had spent three years together there at Hutchinson. And after three years of talking back and forth because they were in neighboring cells, uh, the guys thought, you know, we really need to break out of this place because they were, you know, given a sentence of five to 10 years. And so um, it was the March 9th of 1929 with Carpus and Larry Duvall finally escaped from the reformatory. And so once they escaped, they, Carpus actually rejoined his parents in Chicago because his parents had moved in 1923 from Topeka to Chicago. And his dad took a janitor job there. And that's where Carpus during that time had actually kept up the straight life, working two years, uh, first as a shipping clerk and then for a drug company. Quite frankly, he got bored with that. He was rejoined by Larry Duvall there in Chicago and that's where they connected with a lot of the criminal cronies they would have in the years to come in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, you write that they're through a series of connections with the criminal underworld of the day. They eventually do link up with the infamous uh, Barker gang, uh, forming what we now know as the Barker Carpus gang, which is one of the most feared in the country. But what really put Alvin Carpus and uh, the Barkers on the map was when they killed a local sheriff in West Plains, uh, Missouri, a guy named Sheriff Roy Kelly. And that put them on the map of the FBI. What happened in that moment? Yeah, Sam, I mentioned that um, after Carpus and Freddie Barker were released from uh, the Kansas State Penitentiary, they went back to Tulsa because that's where Freddie Barker and his brothers were from. That's also where Freddie Barker's mother, uh, Kate Barker, and they called her Ma Barker, that's where she lived. And so they um, connected back in Tulsa. Then they decided they wanted to head into Missouri. And... While Freddie Barker was imprisoned at Kansas State, along with Carpus, Ma Barker, who had long been divorced from the Barker father, had taken up with a significant other, or a paramour as they often described them, because she was lonely. And so uh, this paramour, his name was uh, Arthur Dunlop, 
Um, he was a neatly dressed, gray-haired, um, older gentleman. And he always wanted to live in a farmhouse in Missouri. And so in December 1931, um, they rented a farmhouse in Thayer, Missouri. And they had only been there several weeks. And one day, Freddie Barker and one of their uh, Midwest cohorts by the name of Bill Weaver decided they wanted to ride around and try and find some scores. And so they decided to borrow Carpus's car, which is, was a 1931 Blue DeSoto. And they went out and they found this clothing store in West Plains, which wasn't too far from Thayer. And so they robbed that clothing store on the, uh, the evening of December 16th, which was um, a hot and uh, uh, kind of sticky atmosphere. A lot of people were outside. And so the next day, people reported that they saw this 1931 Blue DeSoto in that area of the clothing store the night it was robbed that Thursday evening. And so um, by Saturday morning, day and a half later, this same 1931 DeSoto pulled into a local garage, not too far from the clothing store. And the garage owner, Mr. Davidson, contacted Sheriff Roy Kelly who they knew one another quite well. And he said, hey, uh, this vehicle that a number of folks spotted in the area when the clothing store was robbed has just pulled into my garage with two flat tires. So the sheriff said, okay, I'll be right down. So he came into the garage and he saw Freddie Barker and Bill Weaver. And he approached them and was asking them, quite a few questions. Where were you Thursday night? Are you from the area? So on and so forth. And he didn't like the answers. And so he asked Barker and Weaver to stand up. You're going to be frisked. And being that uh, Freddie and Bill Weaver were packing guns and they knew that Roy Kelly was a sharpshooter, they immediately pulled out their pistols and blasted the sheriff multiple times. Um, the sheriff hit the ground and they kept shooting at him. And of course, uh, he was fatally wounded. And so in haste, of course, uh, Bill Weaver and Freddie Barker took Carpus's car and, you know, just screamed out of the garage and in their haste, they wrecked the vehicle in a ditch and had run back to Bill Weaver's house, which wasn't too far from where Carpus was staying with Freddie Barker. And they got uh, Bill Weaver's old jalopy. They headed to the farmhouse that Carpus and Freddie Barker were renting and, you know, told Carpus, Ma and Arthur, we got to get out of here. Uh, you know, we just shot the sheriff. I shot the sheriff. So um, they got out of there and they headed to another um, another criminal crony's house. The gentleman's name was Herbert Farmer. He was actually originally part of the uh, Dillinger gang. 
and he lived in Joplin, Missouri, and he told them, you need to go and take, um, you know, you need to hide out in uh, St. Paul. And St. Paul is really a crook's haven where all the political folks, the cops, uh, basically gave protection to the criminals and all to all the gangs. And so they immediately took off towards St. Paul. Now, it's, a, it's not too long after that with the whole gang on the run that uh, this is a very well-known end to the story. I mean, numerous historians have, have covered this, that in 1935, uh, after Sheriff Ward Kelly is killed and after the FBI really steps up its pursuit of the, the Barker gang, that they meet their end down in a shootout in uh, Florida. And I love your phrase for this. You, you say that the, the Barker gang went extinct in that moment, <laughs> which is a, a lovely, lovely biological uh, metaphor there. Um, but at that point, Carpus is not actually in the shootout, and he is he is on the run. And this flight from justice, they're aware of his involvement. The FBI is aware of, of, of Carpus's connections to the gang. But uh, they haven't been able to uh, to slip, you know, the, the, the net around him. He ends up back in the Cleveland area. He's getting as far away as he can from Florida and ends up in Cleveland. And uh, you write this very interesting, Julie, you know, you say that there's something in Carpus, which is that he'd had enough cash on hand from a couple of previous scores that he doesn't really need to work. He doesn't need to knock over a, a mail truck, but he does it for fun, right? He does it because he wants to work. He's got this itch that he has to scratch. And, and this itch uh, leads us. He has some cash on hand. He's got enough guys around, kind of a new assembly of uh, associates that are, are kind of slowly replacing the fellow criminals that he'd been working with, you know, further south and so, and so forth. Well, this itch that he has, I love the way that you describe this, is that his childhood obsession with trains comes back and he, he starts to dream really big. So tell us, tell us about this moment where he's still in flight. He's still a refugee. He's still wanted, but, but he also has this, this thing he's got to do and he's got to knock over a train. So bring us to that moment. I'll try to take you the shortest path possible to this moment. <laughs> sure. It's a lot. It's a lot. There's so much history here and that's what makes it so, so rich and so interesting is that the level of detail that you have in your book, but we're, we're on for great escapes here. So we've got to get to this escape. And I'm so excited to hear about, I love a heist. I mean, I just love a heist and I have to confess that to you. And so your account of this was just like catnip to me. So anyway, please bring us to the heist. Okay, great. Well, the reason that uh, Carpus went back to Cleveland originally was because a lot of Ohio cities like Warren, Youngstown, and Cleveland in the Northeast were known as good cities for criminals because of the protection that they received from law enforcement and politicians. And Carpus often said that Cleveland was a great spot uh, for criminals. And so he had been working for uh, some club some club owners 
at the Harvard Club, which was just outside the city of Cleveland. And that's really where he uh, gained a lot of support, both financially and uh, finding connections of, of folks that would hide him out while he was there. And so before, right before the train robbery, an indictment had come down uh, from the grand jury in St. Paul for both the uh, high-profile kidnappings of Edward Bremer and of the uh, brewer tycoon William Ham. And so they were really trying to slide under the radar uh, from the FBI during that time. And so they were spending a lot of time in Cleveland. And that's where Carpus had made a lot of connections with new members that came into the Carpus gang at that time. Um, and uh, one such gentleman one of his last cohorts by the name of Freddie Hunter was from Warren, Ohio. He was an ex-convict and he worked at the Harvard club and was a gambler also. And he met Carpus there and he gave uh, Carpus the idea of uh, robbing a mail truck that was going to be receiving uh, money, payroll money from the Warren Depot and going to be transferred by the mail truck to the post office. And so um, by the end of April 1935, they had robbed this mail truck that had just left the Warren Depot. It was Carpus, um, a guy by the name of Joe Rich, who was a narcotics addict recommended by Freddie Hunter, and then Harry Campbell, who was originally a... Um, a Barker boy. He was part of their gang back in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And once the Barkers, uh, the last Barkers, um, Ma Barker and Freddie Barker were killed in that shootout in January of 1935 in Florida. Um, he was, Carpus was trying to find new recruits for kind of revitalizing the Carpus Barker gang. And so they knocked over this uh, mail truck on its way to the post office in Warren, and they actually secured $124,000 in cash and bonds, 72000 of that actually in cash, and so they were coming off that high, right, the end of um, April 1935. And so they were so successful and got so much money from that heist that Carpus was kind of riding that high and contemplating like the James brothers of robbing this train, something that was not being done in the 30s. And so that um, that's really what gave him kind of that fervor to take on this monumental train heist. Uh, it was going to be the last train heist in American history and it was going to be a getaway, not only by car from Garrettsville, but a um, an escape from Ohio by plane, which had never been done before. Uh, air flight was really in its infancy. That's what I wanted to ask you. This is a remarkable claim that you make in the book, that there had never been an escape quite like this 
This was the first escape of its kind in American history. And I, I was so uh, struck by that claim. I'm not here to challenge you on it to say that that's not the case. I'm curious, uh, Julie, how do you arrive at that determination as a historian? Yes, that's a great question. And it's going to be a loaded answer. And again, I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, when I did my research, I think I mentioned I started at the local historical societies. And from there, I went many, many other different places. I did one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh, folks that actually were affiliated with persons held up in the train robbery itself in 1935. From there, I went to Kent State University, University of Akron, University of Toledo, um, Ohio State University. Then I went to the Michael Schwartz Library at Cleveland State University, where they had all the records on all the gangsters from um, Babyface Nelson to John Dillinger to Alvin Karpus and all their crimes. Then from there, I went to the Library of Congress, the National Archives, um, located in Kansas City in Maryland, uh, San Bruno, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. I went to the Bureau of Prisons, and I also went uh, and, and scavenged the records throughout the um, Department of Justice. And... I was able to indeed verify by looking at not only local records, all the local libraries, the government agencies, speaking to archivists, you know, everywhere. Um, I found that speaking to archivists, because they speak to other folks that may be also researching a similar topic, they have all that knowledge and they can guide you on where to look places that you may have not thought about. And I know that the Bureau of Prisons was one agency that I really hadn't thought about. And so um, from there, the archivists, you know, speaking with the archivists at San Bruno, um, you know, actually visiting Alcatraz Island, uh, doing interviews with so many people that had experience in researching similar topics, I was able to come to that conclusion that it is indeed the last, you know, successful train heist in American history. Now, other train heists were attempted, but they were not successful. Well, that's a useful, a useful distinction. So let's take a look at Carpus between April of 1935 and November of 1935 when the heist actually takes place. He might have only had an eighth grade education, but he was extremely intelligent and he knew how to do his research in advance of a job. How does he case the joint? How does he look at the, uh, the arrival and the timing and the landscape of this train in Garrettsville, Ohio, to know exactly what he's going to knock off, what he's going to get, and how he's going to get away. Well, he had a lot of help. Um, he took, as I mentioned, he took into his plan four other um, cronies. And those included um, Harry Campbell, who again had been with him for the duration since about 1931 up until this point in November 1935. Um, 
Harry had uh, basically been part of the uh, Barker gang and was well acquainted with uh, Freddie and Doc Barker. And so Harry had a lot of connections in Ohio, a lot of connections in the South. And he had done, Harry Campbell had done this before. So he utilized his support and help. Uh, he also uh, was able to use Freddie Hunter, who was uh, the older gentleman I mentioned that uh, was from Warren, who helped him hatch the plan for the mail truck robbery in Warren. Then uh, he took in a gentleman who had spent time in prison with Doc Barker in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This gentleman's name was John Brock. Uh, he was a younger younger gentleman, but had an extensive criminal record. Um, and then um, uh, another gentleman from Tulsa, Oklahoma. His name uh, was Joe Roscoe, and um, he was part of the plan. And then the final gentleman was Benson Groves, who was a connection through Harry Campbell. He was from West Virginia, an older gentleman in his mid-50s, and he had an extensive rap sheet as well. And so Carpus had always been a very good planner. He always thought things through. And this is something that even J. Edgar Hoover would admit, that he was really the brains, quote, the brains of the outfit. And so he would case the area. He would, you know, talk to his connections, people that lived in the area, to know really what he was working with. And I think I mentioned in the book that he ran the roads numerous times from Garrettsville, from the depot, to Port Clinton, which was about 110 miles. Um, and he knew every bump along the way. And particularly for this, um, from running from Garrettsville to Port Clinton, it was an inconspicuous route because there were a lot of back roads that the cops never traveled. So that's one reason that he chose the Garrettsville Depot, in addition to the fact that it was the stopover, um, you know, uh, from Cleveland to Garrettsville and then finally on to Pittsburgh. And so, um, yes, he was a very good planner. He read the newspapers. He read True Detective. He read Red Book, which was another magazine in which a lot of the um, government men or special agents like Melvin Purvis would put articles in about what their next move is going to be or where they were looking for a particular uh, bandit or gangster. And so he, he read a lot. He kept up. And that's the mistake that uh, the FBI made was that they would consistently report what they were doing, like justifying, you know, how funds were being used, that they were really um, active in this war on crime. And so really he kept up on, um, you know, his connections in the underworld. He had close ties with corrupt politicians, with corrupt law enforcement, he read the newspapers every day, and he really tested things, like with traveling these roads when he was going to make a getaway. So what was the plan after all of this research? What plan did he and the gang eventually decide on? He had been casing 
the money that was going to be money left every week. Um, they were the the money was the payroll that went to uh, big Ohio towns like Youngstown and Warren because that's where the giant mills were, like the steel mills. And so every day of you know every certain day of each week, this money would leave the Cleveland Depot um, from the Federal Reserve, and it would travel to these Ohio towns like Youngstown and Warren, and Garrettsville was always the stop. And so he thought, huh, Garrettsville is a quaint little historic town. Very few people live there. Really, the only thing he had to worry about was uh, Hiram College, which was only two miles removed from Garrettsville. And usually at the Garrettsville Depot, they had a lot of Hiram students there. And so he thought, well, that's not really a big deal. So he said, I'm going to put one of my guys, one of my four guys that's supposed to be part of this plan, out at the Cleveland Depot to stand on the platform to watch and make sure that the payroll money actually goes on the train and to make sure that there are no FBI agents out there watching. And so that was originally supposed to be the job of Sam Coker, who I mentioned was from the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. And so unfortunately, at the last minute, Sam Coker um, got deathly ill. And <laughs> as Carpus described it, he came down with gonorrhea. Whoops. And got, <laughs> got even more sick because he tried to inject iodine to flush it out. And he ended up at a Toledo hospital. And so two days... Yeah, uh, November, <laughs> November 15th was in an emergency room in Toledo. And so Carpus didn't have someone to basically serve as the lookout at the Cleveland Depot. So he kind of scratched that part of the plan. The rest of the plan was they put all of this together and finalized it at a, a madam uh, Madam's rooming house. The madam's name was Edith Berry. Uh, she was a middle-aged woman who was really kind of sweet on Carpus, and Carpus actually spent a lot of time there. And so on November 5th, the gang got together at her rooming house in Toledo, and they went through the fine details of how the plan was going to unfold. And the plan included that um, they were going to have Freddie Hunter, again from Warren, he was going to basically be the watchman out in the parking lot to make sure nobody left. And then Benson Groves, who was the gentleman in his mid-50s, was going to just kind of overtake the train engineer and the fireman because he was a seasoned criminal. Then Carpus and Harry Campbell were going to be in the feature roles of um, overtaking the mail train or the mail cab with all the money. Um, and so the night before, November 6th, Carpus was meeting with John Zetzer, who was a, run, a rum runner during Prohibition. They met with John Zetzer at Port Clinton at the airport, and they finalized the details 
that they were going to take off um, early morning, November 8th, after the train heist, and head south. Yep, and Zetzer's the, Zetzer's the pilot, right? Zetzer is the one who's actually going to be flying them. Yes, yep. and they were connected through Joe Roscoe, and there's a lot of names in here. There's just so many people that they were affiliated with and they connected to to make all this happen. And so Joe Roscoe connected um, Carpus and Harry Campbell with John Zetzer at the Port Clinton airport. And they gave him $1,500 for Stinson aircraft. And also that included trips that were going to take place down South, um, you know, in, after they were trying to get away. And so then the night of the 6th, November 6th, Freddie Hunter uh, went back to Youngstown to get the car. Carpus also stayed in that area. And then the evening of um, November 6th, Carpus took John Brock, who again was... Uh, part of the plan, but at the last minute, because he had to fill in for Sam Coker, because Sam came down with the gonorrhea and then tried to use iodine to flush his system. So at the last minute, John Brock from Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, came in to basically stand at the Garrettsville station platform to guard it and make sure nobody tried to get away. So the plan was Sam Brock was going to come in to take Sam Coker's, or I'm sorry, John Brock was going to come in to take Sam Coker's place on the station's platform. And again, Carpus and Harry Campbell were going to actually uh, secure the money from the mail cab. Uh, Freddie Hunter was going to guard the parking lot. And uh, Ben Grayson was going to overtake the train engineer and the fireman. And I still, to this day, if you cannot tell, have a hard time remembering all these different folks because this story, I think, even though it's a regional publication through the history press, Carpus went from Texas to Oklahoma to Florida, <laughs> uh, throughout the northeast part of the country. Minnesota, I mean, yeah, he, sure. Yeah, he was everywhere. And he made, you know, that was really to his benefit. He made so many connections in so many different states that I, you know, even with doing the research and spending five years uh, looking at this topic, it is hard to remember really what got him to be the successful gangster that he became. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. So what happens on 
November 7th. Does it all go according to plan? It absolutely does go according to plan. And so, um, really, it was carried out in American Wild West fashion. And so, these robbers, these five men, some masked with handkerchiefs, they swung into position on the station's platform. Um, and under the terrified gaze of nearly a dozen men and women. So uh, Carpus and his cronies, they systematically, they lined up a dozen um, of these terrified bystanders, including um, Earl Davis, who I mentioned I interviewed his son. And actually Earl Davis... Uh, had been holding his hands up in the air along with 11 others on the station's platform in Garrettsville. And suddenly, Carpus ordered him to carry four heavy mail pouches from the platform to the bandits' 1935 Plymouth sedan. And notably, it was Davis who, when he was loading these pouches into the car, that there were weapons on the seat. But when I interviewed the son, he indicated that his father told him that not once did he contemplate playing the hero by seizing those guns. They just, you know, it was the 1930s, a Great Depression, people were suffering. He just wanted to load those pouches and get out of there alive. And so I mentioned that um, in my book, that there was also a Garrettsville area resident whose house sat right up against that depot. And that gentleman mentioned that he witnessed the whole uh, train robbery unravel. He was only five or six years old at the time. He was standing at his bedroom window with his mother and, and heard a shot. And so... Um, I'd like to read to you, if I could, this explanation of what he saw. I think it's very interesting. So this gentleman, who eventually became a doctor in Garrettsville, he stated, quote, I remember the engineer and fireman being pulled out of the engine compartment and a lot of commotion in the area. My mother called my father at his office, which was over a local drugstore. And at that time, the only law enforcement in town was a night watchman. My mother had telephoned the operators who connected her with the sheriff's department in Ravenna, and they indicated they were really too far away to do much. They suggested that she shoot at the escape car to market so that it could not be so that it could be identified later. But since there were Tommy guns sticking out of every window of the getaway car as it drove away, I think that she wisely declined their suggestion. <laughs> I, as five or six years old at the time, was hiding behind a cast iron radiator, and that would be of little value if the Tommy guns opened up. So that was his synopsis of what he saw at just five or six years old. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me was that because it was so well planned and well executed, minus one or two minor little scuffles, you know, just involving the doors of the train and sort of the startled um, employees and so forth. I mean, you write that it was over really fast. I mean, it was just kind of a seamless, they got on, they got the bags, they threw the bags in the car, they threw the 
you know, threw themselves and the rest of the car and then they were off, weren't they? Absolutely. It's literally only, I believe, when I researched it, six minutes or less that they did this. It was, as you said, seamless. And the remarkable part that was really to the benefit of the gang was that nobody got off the train at that stop. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, right. That would have complicated things for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one thing, one detail, which was kind of curious, was that you write that they got the right train in that it was, in fact, the train coming from the Federal Reserve Building, but they did not get exactly the right loot that they expected, that there was some discrepancy between how much they thought would be on the train in terms of the cash haul or the cash and bonds haul and how much was actually on the train. What was that discrepancy? That was a big deal and a big deal that carpets didn't handle all that well once the train stopped and they were trying to heist the money from the mail cab. Uh, when the doors opened, the train had stopped at the depot, the doors opened. Carpus was standing with his Tommy gun pointed at two mail clerks who immediately, when they saw Carpus with his Tommy gun, slammed the door shut and hid in the mail cab. And that's when Carpus threatened to throw in a stick of dynamite. And so he threatened that, and the the car doors didn't, the mail cab doors didn't open. So then he said, I'm going to count to five, and those doors better be open. And by the time he got to four, those doors were back open, and this time there were three mail clerks. And as Carpus described, he said the third clerk was a, quote, big heavyset Negro, and he hadn't even noticed this guy the first time. But that third clerk was really a nervy guy. And he told Carbus, hey, man, you can't do this. Get off of that gun. And not one of the three clerks would raise their hands in submission until Carpus tried to fire off a warning shot over their heads. And he did, but the gun didn't go off. Instead, the sound of Carpus's hammer falling startled the men and seized with fear their hands all reached for the sky. So at that point, Carpus went into the cab and he looked at all the bags stacked from floor to ceiling. And he took the bag first, the payroll bag for Warren, and then he demanded the one for Youngstown. And the one clerk stated, what isn't on here? And so Carpus um, was getting angry, and he said, where is it? And the clerk said, In Youngstown's payroll went out the day, it went out yesterday. And Carpus was angry, and he decried to Harry Campbell, he said, look out here, I'm going to shoot this guy. And he was going to pull the trigger. A single discharge from a gun produced a flash but it wasn't Carpus who fired off the shot. It was Harry Campbell who was so nervous that he fired a shot into the mail car and the bullet ricocheted and struck one of the mail custodians, though not gravely. So they missed out. Uh, they received $34,000 in cash 
and $11,650 in bonds. And it was supposed to be a $300,000 score. Yeah, that's um, there's a little bit of a gap there, just a little bit. Quite a bit. But even so, you know, in you know, today's money, that's still $715,000. Not bad for a day's work, if you can call it work. So, so as far as the getaway goes, they, they jump in the car. Um, it, it's not the cleanest of getaways. You write that someone gets a hold of their license plate number, and then they even have some local guy who tries to tail them for a minute, but that doesn't last very long. But, but regardless of that, they do actually make it to... Port Clinton, where uh, John Zetzer is waiting. They cut the bread, as all the jazz musicians down here in New Orleans say. They cut the bread. Um, and and I love the detail <laughs> that you include, where uh, the night before they actually get ready to uh, get on the plane with Zetzer and, and go back down to Hot Springs, Arkansas, um, they're actually sleeping with the loot in their beds. Right, I mean, it's sort of like you know, the, the, they've got these duffel bags filled with with cash and guns, and they're sort of cradling them like they would, <laughs> like a baby or a pillow or something, as they're asleep. I mean, that's just that's adorable and kind of terrifying in a way. Absolutely. Well, um, I think it's important to mention that they individually, um, the Carpus Barker gang, did quite well on all of their uh, robberies and heists, and. With this one, with the train robbery, they each uh, took away about $5,100 apiece. And so, yes, they decided about 11 p.m. They left Port Clinton Airport. Um, they followed John Zetzer home to his place, which was only a few miles away. And they slept in the front bedroom with their loot and their guns with one, one eye open. So... Uh, then the next morning, you know, at 10 a.m., they took off from the airport and headed south. It, it really is incredibly sort of cinematic, this, this, you know, swooping onto the platform, unloading the train, driving off in a flurry, gun sticking out the window, off to the airport. I mean, it just, it's, it's a hell of a story, Julie. And, you know, there's just so much, so much there. And it's interesting because at this moment when... Carpus and his gang are literally in the wind, right? I mean, it's not just a metaphor. Um, they flew from central Ohio down to Hot Springs with their haul. And as that is happening, the FBI are finally catching up to the fact that something has happened, you know, on this platform, that something is afoot in central Ohio. And they're swarming the area. The whole story is remarkable from start to finish. But when you get into the nitty-gritty of the law enforcement, of the Bureau's involvement um, in trying to locate Carpus, not just, you know, during this time when the train was robbed. In fact, immediately after the train was robbed in Garrettsville, Hoover himself admitted they had no idea where Carpus was, and they didn't even connect Carpus with this train robbery. Do you know who did? I do not. It was the U.S. Postal Inspectors in Youngstown. Mm. And the reason being because the $11,650 that was confiscated in bonds belonged to the Postal Service. And so information was secured by Youngstown Postal Inspectors 
who were able to ID through photographs uh, Carpus first, and they identified uh, Carpus as the leader of the gang through those 12 individuals that were basically held at gunpoint on the station's platform. And then Carpus, when he was in the mail cab, accidentally left his thumb fingerprint on the windowsill when trying to go through the mail sacks. Well, that'll do it, yeah. (laughs) Whoops. It was the postal inspectors that became immediately engaged and responsible because of those $11,650 in bonds. And they actually did all the investigative work and agent in charge uh, Conley actually wanted really nothing to do with the investigation because, again, they did not think that Carpus was involved. It really was the work of the Youngstown Postal Inspectors who identified uh, basically everyone, uh, every one of the five um, bandits involved in the actual heist. And then they secured the fingerprint on the windowsill in the mail cab And additionally, they were able to locate Sam Coker, who was released by then from the hospital and had returned to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And they also uh, tracked John Brock there. As you know, John Brock took, took the helm and the responsibility that Sam Coker was supposed to have in the train heist. And so they tracked down both John Brock and Sam Coker, and essentially um, a criminal comrade of John Brock in Tulsa was actually holding the loot for John um, while he was back in Tulsa for safekeeping. And the wind, uh, the postal inspectors got wind of this Burhead Keaty, who was the comrade of John Brock, who was holding his money. They raided the casino, the gambling casino that Burhead Keaty operated, and the serial numbers matched up. And so once they got Burhead Keaty and they got the serial numbers for the money, they located John Brock and then Sam Coker. And they became informants that spilled the beans about everything. It did strike me as I was reading your account when Carpus, knowingly or not, I, I think he probably must have known to a certain degree that he had stolen marked bills, traceable money. And that traceability was what led to those first uh, few arrests. I mean, those actually happened quite fast. And you write in your account of the aftermath of the heist that you had a a sort of an an initial flurry of arrests. And then you actually had about six months of stagnation in the investigation that due to, I think a charitable way of saying it is issues among the leadership of the FBI and maybe some internal battles over control and, and prestige, uh, it was quite some time. It really was not until the spring uh, that a full-scale manhunt took shape, wasn't it? That is correct. Uh, absolutely. In fact, what probably precipitated the hunt for Carpus 
where the Bureau was concerned was the fact that they were disregarding all of the great evidence, the informants, the fingerprint, you know, all the other leads that the postal inspectors were gathering and presenting it to Earl J. Conley, who was the agent in charge out of the Cleveland field office. He was disregarding all of this. And really, it wasn't until um, J. Edgar Hoover was requesting additional appropriations in the amount of $5 million for the funding on the war on crime that things really moved along quickly. So I believe it was April 11th, 1936, Hoover arrived on Capitol Hill and he was basically justifying, this is why I need $5 million more for this war on crime. He showed the evidence that yes, robberies, bank robberies were down and we made all these inroads into the war of crime, but he still need to have more agents they needed to have more money invested in traveling to these different areas to try and meet with informants, gather evidence. And so on April 11th, when J. Edgar Hoover arrived on Capitol Hill, he was actually receiving a lot of criticism from Senator Kenneth, Kenneth McKellar, who was a Democrat from Tennessee. And ironically, McKellar um, was chairman of the subcommittee that oversaw the appropriations for the Department of Justice. Now, uh, McKellar was not a man you wanted to offend, and Hoover had already offended him. And so sometime back in 1933, Hoover had refused to appoint several of uh, McKellar's constituents as special agents within the Bureau. So when McKellar brought this to the attention of U.S. Attorney General Homer Cummings, who was Hoover's boss, Hoover then filed, he fired three agents from McKellar's district. And so this left a bad taste in Senator McKellar's uh, mouth, and he remembered this. So then during that hearing, McKellar asked Hoover, point blank, how many arrests have you personally made? And Hoover kind of went back and forth and eventually said, well, personally, I've never arrested anyone. My agents, my government men have. And he said, well, then how can you justify asking for these appropriations when you're not even credible as the top G-men, as the premier law enforcement man in the land. And so after that hearing, Hoover went back to his office and he made a, a personal goal to go after Carpus personally, to make that his first arrest. Well, that brings us naturally to the point where we get to land this plane. Now, the plane that uh, John Zetzer has piloted from uh, Port Clinton, Ohio to Hot Springs, has dropped off its cargo and the gang go their separate ways. And one by one, they're kind of picked up at, at various points along uh, those those few months. But Carpus is still 
on the lamb. He is still moving around, and he's moved a bit between Hot Springs and uh, New Orleans and the Mississippi Gulf Coast, which um, which brought a little flicker of of joy to my uh, native Mississippian heart. Uh, <laughs> but you know, he's he's still on the lamb, and he does not seem all that concerned that he is being pursued. He um, has bought off at least one chief of police in Hot Springs who sort of tipped him off to the fact that you know, the, the feds were going to uh, swarm his cabin and they miss him by a few days and you know, he's sort of in the wind again. Um, and, yet, and yet, despite Carpus's nonchalance, uh, to a degree uh, about his his fortunes he's going fishing you know he's sort of spending his time just having fun spending the money that he's that he's uh he's stolen uh the net is in fact tightening around him and it is tightening faster than he is fully aware of so uh describe his actual capture for us, because it is this too, just like the heist and the getaway and the escape. This too is actually very cinematic, isn't it, Julie? It absolutely is. Um, there were a lot of um, uncertainties that the bureau did not anticipate. Carpus had always stated, especially after the shooting deaths of Ma and Freddie Barker there in Florida in January of 1934 or 1935, Carpus always swore that he would never be taken alive. So, of course, when the Bureau caught up with Carpus, they believed that it always would be a bloody shootout and they would never take him alive. But I think um, before we get to that cinematic scene there in New Orleans, I think it's important to mention that, you know, during during the years that Hoover, uh, whether actively or kind of indirectly, he was trying to capture all the public enemies of the Depression era, he realized that it wasn't just wrapped up in forensics in the crime lab that was developed and created by the Bureau in 1932. Increasingly, especially after the postal inspectors in Youngstown got involved in trying to locate the culprits of this last great train heist, they realized that it was really around informants. It was around human source intelligence and connecting with the right people, whether it be the girlfriends or the so-called moles, of these gangsters, or whether it was corrupt cops or corrupt politicians or former gang members, it was critical that they had gained evidence through this human source intelligence through informants. And that's really how his days, Carpus's days, became numbered. It was through these informants. And so like I indicated, Hoover didn't get really hastened to find Carpus until after this appropriations hearing on April 11th. And then after that, it became very crucial that he made Carpus his first arrest. Um, the end of March is really when the postal inspectors began to connect with um, 
a lot of the gang members that started giving up a lot of information. They, you know, they confirmed that Carpus, Freddie Hunter, who were now in New Orleans, were, you know, part of that train heist. And that Carpus himself basically was uh, the mastermind behind that plan. It wasn't until the postal inspectors were able to gain evidence through these informants that essentially the FBI, and in particular, agent in charge Earl J. Conley, caught up with a madam that Carpus was connected to in Hot Springs. Her name was Grace Goldstein, and she had pretty much been Carpus's partner uh, over the last year. Um, she had all the connections in Hot Springs, and so that's how he was able to kind of linger for so long. And so inevitably, what happened was one of the informants that was part of uh, Carpus's circle, criminal circle, uh, made the Bureau aware of Grace Goldstein. And so lit mid to mid April, they caught up with Grace in Hot Springs at her brothel. And they pretty much um, kind of coerced her and her family members that if you don't tell us where Carpus is, uh, this is what you're looking at as far as, um, you know, aiding a fugitive and you're going to have a long prison sentence. And so she actually uh, did not know where Carpus's apartment was in New Orleans, because at the time she was in Hot Springs, he was in New Orleans, he was checking out scores there. And um, Freddie Hunter was in a different location in New Orleans. They were in separate apartments just kind of safeguard themselves that if one was caught, the other would not be. So Grace Goldstein knew where Freddie Hunter's apartment was in New Orleans because that's where they had their meals together, but she did not know where Carpus's apartment was. And she could only tell Earl J. Conley, this is where Hunter's apartment is. I can't help you with where Carpus is located. So that's where the downfall started. And what a downfall it was. I mean, that claim that he would never be taken alive, uh, you write that there are any number of dozens of FBI agents who are preparing to, to bring him in once they finally get a fix on his location. Some people say 18, some people say 28. I mean, we're still looking at... Uh, they were expecting an all-out gun battle in the streets of New Orleans. There was just no other scenario in sight for them, was there? No, no. Um, it. I'm just trying to visualize this in my own mind, how this probably unfolded. And in fact, if you want to get a kind of a glimpse of how this unfolded through images, probably the best one um, and one of the very fewest is the movie J. Edgar starring Leonardo DiCaprio as J. Edgar Hoover. They actually show that scene in the movie. It isn't um, completely, you know, factual, but they do show a scene, you know, it's the evening, it's about 87 degrees in New Orleans. 
May 1st, 1936, um, in a busy suburb of uh, the area, Freddie Hunter's car was parked, you know, just very inconspicuously on Canal Street there outside his apartment. And um, agents Hurt and Earl J. Conley were um, across the street from Freddie's apartment. Um, and so they were, you know, there a couple hours kind of casing the apartment to see if there was any movement. And so what happened was that Conley and Hurt were across the street on Canal and they saw Freddie come out of his apartment. He was on his way to get in the car. And just a few seconds appeared Carpus following him. And they were just about ready to enter the car with, um, with Hunter in the driver's seat. And so Conley in his car rushed and blocked in the front of Hunter's car and out jumped Hurt and Conley and they covered both Carpus and Hunter with their guns. Carpus, of course, as I mentioned, uh, was seated in the front and Agent Hurt wasted no time. He leveled his, his Winchester rifle in Carpus's face through the car's window and as Hurt and Conley covered Carpus from the front. Um, the automobile containing J. Edgar Hoover himself and the associate director Clyde Tolson came barreling across Canal Street to block the rear of Hunter's Plymouth. And they provided additional gun, gun power. So it was really what um, made Carpus seethe when he wrote his autobiographies, he wrote two of them. He mentioned that Hoover later recounted that out of the second car, Hoover jumped and he and Tolson led agents Brantley and Buchanan to Carpus and Hunter. And that this advance by Hoover was recorded in a report by agent in charge, Earl J. Conley, but it became highly contested in Carpus's autobiography. And it was wide, widely reported that the streets, you know, they were in chaos. There were a few dozen G-men that vaulted from every direction. <laughs> um, yeah. And in the analysis, uh, you know, FBI agents later reported there were 18 G-men on the scene, not 28, as, as, you know, as had been reported. And after being forced from the car... A demanding voice shouted, Alvin Carpus, you're under arrest. And Carpus admitted that he could feel the rifle in, the, in his back with the barrel shaking against his backbone. And Carpus described uh, a particular agent as the cool guy with the machine gun. That was Agent W.L. Buck Buchanan, who took off his tie and used it to secure Carpus's wrists. And shockingly, not one agent had brought handcuffs that day because, as we kind of discussed, Carpen, Carpus had often boasted 
that he would never be taken alive. I just think that is the most amazing detail, and I love it so much. There's just so so much charm in that. I have to say, uh, Julie, you have actually given me a little bit of homework to do um, here in New Orleans. Uh, the intersection where Carpus was arrested, uh, I, I believe you're right, was close to the 3300 block of Canal Street, if anybody knows the area. I lived in an apartment on the 3200 block of Dumaine Street for almost eight years, and Dumaine Street is about two or three streets over from Canal. And so I, I have a feeling that in the next couple of days when I'm driving around town, I'm going to have to slow down near my old apartment on Canal. Yeah, it's remarkable. I have not... I've not, you know, visited that area or anywhere near that area, but um, it is that scene that is depicted in the movie J. Edgar uh, that starred Leonardo DiCaprio, and it isn't completely factual, but, I mean, it gives you a, a hint of how remarkable uh, this arrest was because he was the fifth um, gangster on a list of five with Al Capone being the first of this public enemies. And so he was the last uh, public enemy of the Depression era to be arrested. And not only that, to be the first arrest of J. Edgar Hoover. It really is an amazing story. It is just so full of drama and excitement and that great tense struggle between the forces of good and evil, the forces of order and chaos, uh, just sort of locked in in combat there. And you do such an amazing job of telling it. I have one more question for you uh, before we wrap up, which is, what happens to him after his arrest? Uh, you write that he is taken into custody in New Orleans. He's put in a holding cell before he's flown back up to St. Paul, where Minnesota, where he is formally charged. And I counted something like 14 murders, kidnappings, robberies, and other crimes. I mean, I'm sure there's much more to it. Um, but what what is the outcome of his trial? And what what does the next chapter in his life uh, consist of? Because it, it is pretty remarkable. Yes, as you mentioned on May 2nd, um, Carpus was brought back to St. Paul to face trial, and that being for the Bremer kidnapping. Um, that was the second kidnapping where uh, the gang had secured $200,000. And so he was escorted personally by Hoover um, and Hoover's handpicked squad of agents. Um, Carpus landed in St. Paul. He was there only about 12 hours under heavy guard. Um, and yeah, in fact, I have to mention, this is kind of funny. It was reported that during the plane flight, that Carpus was manacled and harassed. And that Carpus himself believed that when the plane got a good distance into the area, that Hoover's and, and his agents would just thrust him out of the plane's door. So that's how... Fearful Carpus kind of was on Hoover because he knew how desperately Hoover wanted to capture him. Yeah, it would be hard to explain that, but at the same time, maybe they just had to lighten the load that the cargo was a little heavy and the plane wasn't going to stay aloft otherwise. Absolutely. So Carpus actually um, pled guilty eventually to the Bremer kidnapping and his part in that. And then um, Harry Campbell, who was later captured as basically public enemy number two, 
because I don't think I mentioned when they left Port Clinton, um, Harry Campbell, uh, Benson Groves, and jo Joe Roscoe stayed, stayed behind. They lived in Toledo. So they stayed behind. So really, after the capture of Carpus in New Orleans, it was really hot and heavy to try and capture Harry Campbell in uh, Toledo. And they inevitably did that uh, within the next couple of days. So Carpus pled guilty to the Bremer kidnapping, um, which gave him a life sentence. If he would have um, been indicted and pled guilty to the train robbery, he would only received 40 years. So that's why they sought to get him on the Bremer kidnapping. And where did they send him? Well, initially he went to Leavenworth. That's where they usually all go. But then Leavenworth was a prison where there were a lot of scapees. And so essentially a lot of those uh, so-called hardened criminals, because they usually escaped from Leavenworth, were sent to Alcatraz. And so he set another record serving nearly 26 years on Alcatraz Island, leaving in 1962, um, right before the prison closed. And um, so, yes, he was a trendsetter for sure. Well, Julie, I, I cannot, I have racked my brains and I cannot think of a more fitting place to leave things um, here today with uh, Alvin Karpis being sent to the one place from which nobody is ever known or proven to have escaped. Uh, there is no better place to end our summer series on great escapes than Alcatraz Island. And listeners who would like to learn more about Carpus's years uh, on the rock, they can pick up a copy of your book. There is some wonderful detail in there and a very long account of what happened uh, in those decades and then after he got out. But for our purposes today, I just want to thank you so very much for taking us on this journey, providing us our own greatest escape and for being a guest here on Crime Capsule. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been Julie Thompson, author of The Hunt for the Last Public Enemy in Northeastern Ohio, Alvin Karpus and His Road to Alcatraz, published by the History Press. As we said, this is our season finale. And we're going to take a little time to regroup and plan out what's coming down the road for season two of Crime Capsule, which will start early this fall. My vote is for ghost crimes. But anyway, regardless of how the vote shakes out, we'll be back in touch soon. So stay tuned for news of what's next for Crime Capsule. To all our listeners out there in podcast land, in TV land, wherever you are, thank you so much for your support of the show. We couldn't do it without you, and please know how grateful we are. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press, and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, who has been our behind-the-scenes wizard for over 30 episodes this past year. So extra shout out to Bill. And if you're hankering for more true crime goodness, make sure you check out his show, Who Killed?, also available on all your favorite platforms. 
Thanks as well to our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. We have a great brain trust here at Evergreen, and I am so grateful to everybody who makes this show happen. As always, I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.